Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 19 through 26 this morning. So if you have, uh, have not been here the last couple of weeks, you're playing a little catch-up. We're in a series uh, uh, called What or Who is the Holy Spirit? And walking through understanding how the Holy Spirit works in our life. And so uh, one of the things this last week I was, I was thinking through as we've been going through this, this series, that when you just pause for a moment and think about how much the Holy Spirit does in our lives, that really apart from Him, we're toast. I mean, we're, we're in a world of hurt. Because if the last couple weeks we talked about a few weeks ago that, that God sends His Spirit to live inside of us, to give us His power, which is way beyond our human capacity to accomplish what He wants to do, be His witnesses. And then last week of here we talked about how He equips us supernaturally to give us gifts to accomplish His purpose. And then this week we're going to talk about the evidence that, that demonstrates that He is actually active and alive and working in our, in our hearts and transforming us. And we call it fruit that demonstrates His presence. And if you, if you remove Him from the equation, then we are powerless, we have no gifts to offer, and we can't produce anything of good substance in our life because He's not with us. But if you think of the opposite, with the Holy Spirit's presence, we have supernatural power, supernatural gifts, and then today we'll talk about things that he produces in our life that even in our best intentions, our best efforts, working as hard as we can, we can never come close to touching what he can produce, the evidence and the fruit that he develops in our life. And so because of that, it's just this reminder that, that God's spirit is a key ingredient in following Jesus. Apart from him, you and I can't follow Jesus. But with him, we can accomplish what Jesus wants to accomplish in this world and what he wants to accomplish in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be in, in Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to talk about what's probably many, probably somewhat familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits. There's only one fruit. It's the outcome of the work of the Spirit in our life. But Paul, in this passage, he lists nine different characteristics of what that evidence or that fruit will look like in our lives when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us and transforms us. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But before we, we jump into it, I want you and I just to be reminded the tendency this morning when we go through this list is to feel absolutely overwhelmed, like this is impossible. Kind of like the first week we talked about power, last week we talked about gifts. There's a reason that when you and I read scripture and God puts these things out for us, that we do feel like that's impossible. That's exactly where we're supposed to be. Because what you and I are going to talk about this morning, fruit is, the fruit of the Spirit is not something you and I can produce. We can't just add a little extra work on the side and, man, now I'll be able to develop the fruit of the Spirit. In, in fact, if you think about it this way, when we think of physical fruit, in our culture, it's pretty easy. If I wanted to get an apple, an orange, or a banana, I could go down to the local grocery store or wherever, and I could buy that, and I could have the fruit. But if I want to have something that's sustainable over a long period of time that's more than just a, a purchase of fruit, I have to think about a fruit tree. And a fruit tree is a much larger endeavor than going down to the store and buying a piece of fruit. It requires the right soil. It requires the right fertilizer. It requires taking care of the tree. It requires the right environment for the tree to be healthy so that it will produce fruit. And there's a whole lot more involved. But the bottom line is, I can't grow an apple. The tree only can grow an apple. How many know that's true? The tree is what produces the fruit. The tree is where the life comes from. All I can do is create the right environment, but the life itself comes from the tree. The same thing is true when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I can't grow fruit. We can't make it happen. I can't work harder and produce fruit, but I can create the right environment and the right soil for the Holy Spirit to do His work in me so He can produce His fruit. So really, when we get to the end of the day, you'll see that, that the fruit of the Spirit really is less about working harder and more about surrendering who we are and where we've been so that God can do what He wants to do in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and take a look at Galatians chapter 5. Start reading at verse 19 and go down to verse 26. So Paul writes this. He says, "...the acts of the flesh are obvious." Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's quite the list, isn't it? I warn you that as I did before, 
that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So Paul lays out a comparison. This is the big comparison. He says, first off, starting in verse 19, if you and I are left to our own devices, if humanity is left on its own, this is what we produce. And that's a nasty list of stuff there that Paul gives. And then he says in verse 22, but when the Spirit is present, when we've surrendered and crucified the flesh and no longer live that way, when the Holy Spirit comes, his list of what he produces is completely different, almost opposite of what you and I will produce on our own. And so with this, this understanding this morning, what I, I want you and I to do, we're going to walk through all nine of these. And the reason I want to do this is because it shows you and I, it demonstrates to you and I what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. So you and I can identify either in our lives or in the lives of people around us say, yeah, that's a result of God's Spirit at work in their life. Because apart from God's Spirit, we can't produce any of these. Nobody can produce any of these. Only by God's Spirit can these things be worked out in our life. So we're going to identify and define what those look like this morning so we can understand what his fruit or what he produces, what it looks like in our life. The first one that Paul lists is love. And love, most easily defined, is sacrifice instead of selfishness. It's having this incredible supernatural capacity to look way beyond ourselves to what other people are experiencing, what other people are going through, what other people need. It's a supernatural thing that we have, not that we can do on our own. In fact, it's so supernatural that Jesus talks about not only loving people that you like, that you relate to, that you're close to, that you're friends with, but he says loving the people that hate you and the people that are your enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We're like, yeah, that one works for me. But then he goes on, verse 44, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ouch. Not one of us can do that apart from God's Spirit. Not one of us has the capacity to genuinely love and accept and look out for the very person who is the source of our pain. The person who has done something to us that is wrong. The person that continually hurts us. It's one thing to love somebody who's lovable. It's another thing to love somebody that you can't stand. That's hurt you. That's unsafe. See, only the supernatural God of the universe can allow the human beings, human beings to experience that. We can't do that. But we can see it in other people. I came across an amazing news story that I want you to see that demonstrates the depth of what it looks like when a human being has the capacity to not just tolerate, but to truly forgive and to love their enemy. Take a look at this together. <laughs> you may not be in the same position as Renee Napier. Maybe you have. Maybe you've, you've, someone's taken the life of a loved one. But all of us have experienced some kind of pain or loss or hurt at the hands of somebody else. And the only way you and I can navigate beyond that is to find the capacity to choose to love and forgive someone who's done that. You and I can't do that in our own human capacity. That's why, as I mentioned when we started, we are absolutely dependent on God's Spirit to work in us, to change anything, to truly love somebody who we've, in some season of our life, have chosen to hate. Only God can do that. In fact, Jesus did that. The very ones that crucified him are the very ones that he extended love and forgiveness to. He demonstrates what that looks like for you and I. Second thing that Paul lists of what the Spirit produces in us is joy. And joy has to do with the clarity in the face of difficulty. In other words, what joy is, is not this giddy feeling, this kind of happy, laughy, kind of let's make things silly and let's pretend we're happy kind of reality. It is a deep, rooted deep in our hearts, a sense of joy in circumstances that seem to be totally opposite of what we're experiencing. 
It's having the capacity to truly have joy in the face of loss or pain or struggle or difficulty or crisis. That is a supernatural reality. In fact, it's something that you and I see in Scripture, and sometimes it's difficult for us to see in our lives today. But in Acts chapter 16, there's an amazing story. In, in verse 25, it's a, it's a verse maybe you've heard before, but amazing story about Paul and Silas who are following Jesus, or serving his purpose, and they're in, they go in, into a city as they do, and, and as they're preaching the gospel, this, this girl keeps hounding them, and Finally, Paul gets tired of it and turns around and he casts a demon out of her, sets her free. She was telling fortunes, and, and because of that, the, her owners are going to lose money, so they get thrown in prison. And not only thrown in prison, they get falsely accused of doing the wrong thing when they really did the right thing. And then they get beaten, their backs are laid open, they're flogged, and then they're stuck in the inner cell. So, and now they're really awaiting probably most likely death. That's a bad day, right? And then it says in verse 25, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Wow. How in the world can Paul and Silas do that? How in the world can they praise God, worship Him, when they're sitting in a cell for doing the right thing, their life is on the line, they're in these stocks that are built to be torturous, they keep you off balance all the time, their backs are bleeding, they're exhausted, and yet their hearts are full of joy. That has to be supernatural. Only God could do that. Only God can produce that. Now, not quite to that level, but I've seen that demonstrated recently. uh, And I saw it firsthand. I saw the comparison of what joy looks like next to sorrow. So about six weeks ago, uh, many of you know, uh, Samuel Buxton passed away, who was an elder in our church, longtime part and very influential. Mary's here today. And and, um, uh, I had the privilege of, of doing his graveside, and then we had a memorial here at the church And it was interesting to see the experience, especially at the graveside. There was about 20 or 25 people that gathered at the graveside for for Samuel's graveside uh, service. And it was at Forest Lawn in in Hollywood Hills. And and as we gathered around uh, the graveside and we were getting ready to start, I was standing there and and I looked across the way and there's probably about 200 yards away, there was another memorial, another uh, graveside going on. But that graveside was a little bit bigger. It was probably close to 100, 150 people. And as I watched the group of people in front of me, before we even started, it was loud. There was laughter. There were tears. There was joking. There was stories. There was all kinds of stuff. And then I just stepped back, and I looked 200 yards away, and you couldn't hear a sound. It was depressing. It was dark. It was sad. In fact, I know the difference of when I've done funeral services for those who you know who knew Jesus and those who you didn't really know if they did and most likely didn't. And the difference is our worlds apart. In fact, when we started at, at Sam's graveside, it's like you normally have to do, I had to tell people to be quiet and sit down. Normally when you're at a funeral, you don't have to tell people to be quiet and sit down. They just do. And then when stories were shared about Samuel's life, there were tears, but there was joy and laughter. And how could this be? In fact, back by one of these trees in the back, there were two, the two attendants working for Forest Lawn, and I talked to, to both of them afterwards, and one of them I found out he was someone who knew Jesus. And so as he's watching this transpire, he's smiling. He's seeing the joy in everybody, and, and, and then the guy next to him is just kind of stone-faced. He's got like his game face on because he's at work. And he's probably kind of scratching his head like, what is wrong with these people? This is a graveside. You're not supposed to have, have joy in this. Why would we experience that? I can tell you because Samuel was filled with the Spirit. Mary's filled with the Spirit. And about 20 or 25 people there, they were filled with the Spirit. And the, the evidence of that was joy in the midst of death and loss. That is supernatural. Human, we cannot manufacture joy in that situation. We can't. We can pretend, we can go to the store and we can buy joy, but it's not real joy. It's not produced by the Holy Spirit. That is a supernatural fruit, a result of God's evidence of His work in us. Then Paul goes on, and the third element that he lists is peace. And peace is calm in the midst of chaos. It's this capacity to to be totally at peace to be free from anxiety, even though everything else around you says you should be freaking out right now. 
there's this peace that the Holy Spirit brings that is so supernatural that sometimes when people are experiencing chaos or difficulties and they're not freaking out, people think they're strange. Like, what's wrong with you? You should be reacting stronger to this. But if you and I understand that God's Spirit lives inside of us and therefore God is a good God and everything God does is good and ultimately His purpose is worked out in our lives, then we really believe what Paul wrote in Romans eight twenty eight that he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. That even when circumstances aren't good, we still have the capacity to know that God is good. That's peace. That's supernatural. I watched my dad demonstrate what this looks like years ago when he had been kind of teetering on the potential of having prostate cancer and he would go through tests and and find out where his PSA level and so we were always kind of like kind of keying in dad how are you doing what's going on and I remember one day he pulled the whole family together when you're when you're kind of on that stage and you pull the whole family together you know it's not going to be good news so we're sitting in the living room I can still remember Kim and I had just been married for a little while Courtney and Jordan weren't even born yet And my dad sat us all down and he said, listen, he said, I have prostate cancer. And I remember when he said that, on the outside, I'm trying to hold it together. Inside, I am freaking out. This is my dad. Nothing happens to my dad. This is the Amstutz family. No bad stuff happens to the Amstutz family. Cancer doesn't come to our family. It comes to somebody else's family, right? This can't be happening. And so inside, I'm like, I'm like freaking out completely. And my dad just calmly starts talking about, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. This is the surgery I'm going to have. This is the radiation treatment. This is the follow-up and all that. And just, and completely at peace. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Dad, would you just freak out and make me feel a little bit better right now? And I watched my dad go through the surgery and through long period of radiation treatment and all the things he went through, completely at peace. Now, why was he at peace? Obviously, because God's Spirit lived inside of him. But he was at peace because I knew what my dad understood He wasn't at peace because, okay, God's going to heal me and I'm going to be fine. No, I'm at peace because whether I live or die, God is good. That's the only way you and I have peace. And I watched, I learned from my dad, that is what it looks like when everybody else around you is freaking out. I even remember when we went to the hospital, some people came from the church and some friends. My parents have a lot of relationships. And even in their, their, their best intentions was to come and pray. And in their prayers, they were just freaking out in the hospital. I remember my mom asked them to leave. We're okay. It's all right. We don't need you to freak out in the hospital. We're not freaking out. And I remember watching that. There wasn't this panic because God's presence was there, because God's peace was working through his spirit. You and I, when we go through things like that, if the spirit is truly alive and at work in our lives, we will look different than everyone else around us. We won't even have to say anything. It'll just be evidence of that. Why? Because God's Spirit is at work in His life, in our lives, and He's producing His fruit in us. So we have love, joy, peace, patience, and then Paul mentions, or excuse me, peace, and then he mentions patience, the fourth thing. Patience. I think patience is as difficult as love, joy, or peace <laughs> for all of us. Patience is showing restraint instead of reaction. It is a supernatural capacity to be transformed in such a way that when we're in a circumstance where everything tells us to react against or to push or to be impatient, we find the capacity to actually be patient with people in relationships. It's the demonstration of what God tells us about himself. God is patient with us. And if anyone deserves to be impatient with humanity... God is first on the list because he has been so patient. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He says, but do not forget uh, this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like, are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And what Peter's saying is God is incredibly patient with humanity. If you read through Israel's history and you look at human history and all the ways that we found to turn our back on God and rebel against Him and test His patience, He continually is patient with us and He's delaying the return of Jesus. Why? So He gives more time for humanity to wake up to the reality of God's love. That is patience. Man, 
If you and I were God, we would have been done with this a long time ago, wouldn't we? We would, have been, we would have been to the end of our patience, to the end of our rope. We would have run out of our human capacity to be patient. But God is supernaturally, divinely patient with us. Now, that's hard to get our hands on or to really get our minds around. What does it look like for someone to demonstrate the fruit of patience, patience in their life with other people around? Because you and I live in a culture which is highly impatient, aren't we? I have found there is a vortex in our city where somehow the fruit of the Spirit has yet to fully penetrate. It's called Costco <laughs> on a Saturday. Patience doesn't exist there. I think it was about a week or so ago, Kim and I decided to take one for the team and go to Costco on a Saturday. And we drove into the parking lot. And if you've been to Costco recently, they're doing construction in the gas station area. So that's a, that's a mess. And literally, I dropped Kim off at the door, and there were zero places in the whole parking lot. Even all the way to Chili's, everything was full. There wasn't one spot. So there's still like probably 100 or 200 cars, and we're all searching for that one spot. So everybody's cutting everybody else off, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're pushing your way in, and nobody's stopping at any of the stop signs because everybody's trying to get the spot, and, and all this is going on. And, and then part of it, I went and got gas, and the line was almost out to the street, almost out to Cochrane. It's crazy. And so you're waiting. It's like 20 minutes. You finally get into to the gas station and the gas station. And then if, you know, if you've gotten gas at Costco, you know the way it works. When you first turn in, you go really slow because you're kind of seeing which line's moving. You don't commit too early, otherwise you're messed up. Then you're stuck in the slow line. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So people, you pull in and you kind of gap two lines and you don't really commit, but you're slowly moving still. You haven't fully committed, so you can make a break. And so the guy in front of me is doing that and everyone's doing that. So everyone's trying to find their way and it's just a mess. And so this is all unfolding and, and, and I know I'm going to eventually kind of fight my way back into the parking lot and I got to go find Kim and Costco. And so as I'm waiting and, and, and finally when I get just about, just got up, just one before to get into, to get gas, I'm, I'm kind of watching the chaos around me and people are honking at each other. You know what I mean, you, know, you can't move and, and people are impatient. And, and so just over to my left in the first row of cars waiting for the first uh, gas pumps, that happened the way the construction was is that you couldn't really see around the corner, but the, the gas pump was open, but you couldn't see it. So people thought the first row was closed, but lines were waiting there. And so people are impatient. Some people could tell. So they're honking when someone's not moving fast enough. And suddenly this lady gets out of her car. I'm like, oh, it's going to get really fun now. And she just kind of slowly walks over to a car, not even in the line that she's in. And she taps on the window. And I, at that time, I'm, my window's down and I'm listening because this is going to be interesting. And I don't know if it was, I don't know who was in the car, a man or woman, but she, the person rolls the window down. I could hear what she was saying. She goes, hey, she goes, I don't know if you know, but this whole side is still open. So if you look up there, she goes, there's still space for you to move your car, so you're free to move up there. And I'm like, no swearing, no screaming. And, and the person said, you could hear out of the window, thank you. And she pulled forward and got into, or he pulled forward and got in, and she went back to her car, and I just sat there. I'm like, one person in the 3,000 people that are on this property found the capacity to be patient enough to go look out for somebody else who everybody else was honking and telling them to move. And she just tapped on the window and said, hey, it's okay for you to move forward. One person. That wasn't the norm. That was the exception. That's the culture we live in. It's normal to get impatient. I get impatient, but it's not supernatural. Supernatural is patience. Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to sit in the middle of the chaos of Target or, or Costco and... Be totally at peace. To be patient. To be kind to people around you. That's supernatural. Then Paul goes on and he gives us a fifth element of what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in our life when he is transforming us, and that is kindness. Kindness is mercy in a harsh world. It's, ex it's experiencing such a transformation in our life that even though we live in a harsh culture and a harsh environment, we have the capacity to genuinely show kindness to people who maybe don't necessarily deserve it. That's a supernatural reality for you and I. 
Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 32. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Be kind and compassionate to somebody else who maybe you, by society's rules, don't necessarily have to be kind to. Maybe they need to pay for what they've done, and we don't respond in kindness. But kindness, again, it's supernatural. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit that allows you and I to find the capacity to be kind to somebody that maybe we don't think deserves kindness. About a week or so ago, Kim and I were at our tax appointment. That's always fun. We're sitting with our tax guy and going through our our stuff. And so my phone rings, and it's Courtney. And uh, I'm right in the middle, so I, I couldn't get it. But our kids know if it's an emergency, just keep calling, and Mom and I will figure out a way. And so... Uh, I get another call from Courtney, and then I get a third call, I think, from Jordan. And finally, I pick it up, and I'm like, what's going on? And Jordan's on the other end of the phone. He's like, Dad, the car won't start. So Courtney and Jordan were at school, and they were going to head home. And they got to the car, and the car would start. Nothing. I said, okay. I said, you have a AAA card in your wallet. Pull it out. There's a number on it. Call AAA. They'll come out, and it's, maybe it's a starter, maybe it's a battery. I said, whatever, they'll either jump it or they'll tow it. And I said, just, just wait there, and, and AAA will come. And so he's like, okay, Dad, okay. So he hangs up, and I don't know, a couple minutes later, we get another phone call update. Okay, I call AAA, and they're on their way, and, but the car's not starting, and I have to go here. And so Jordan's kind of in a panic. Courtney's in a panic, and we're like, I'm like, just, just be calm. We got AAA. They're on their way. They're going to be there, okay? We're like 40 minutes away. There's nothing we can do. So we don't hear anything for a while. And so finally, kind of coming to the end of our tax appointment, either Kim or I texted or called the kids, and they're driving. I'm like, wait a second. They're like, yeah, the car, we got the car started, and we're headed home. We got all these things. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did AAA come? Well, no, 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 AAA hasn't come yet. Like, well, wait a second. What happened? So Jordan tells me, according to they're telling us, that this guy who lives in the neighborhood from across the street came out of his house, with his jumper cables, pulled his car over, and jumped him. Now, let me tell you why this is remarkable. Anybody live near a school? Anyone live near a high school? Schools aren't the best neighbors, are they? And I know Grace, my kids go to Grace Brethren, and they try to work really hard to make sure the kids park in certain areas. But I've been there, especially in the morning and in the afternoon when everybody's there. Everybody's parking everywhere. Everyone's blocking driveways. It would not be fun to live there. So this guy's had to put up with that mess. And he looks across the street, and he sees two kids who can't get their car started. And you had to think there had to be part of him thinking, man, serves them right. (laughs) It's been such a headache to me and my neighbors and in this neighborhood and but he didn't. He saw that they needed something, and so he, instead of responding with harshness, he responded with kindness. Now, I haven't had the chance yet, but I've got to go track that guy down. I've got to say, thank you for taking care of my kids. Thank you for showing kindness to my kids when I couldn't be there. That's a supernatural reality because how many times have we thought, ah, oh, yeah, you're getting what you deserve. Like the person who cuts you off and then two miles down the line, they're, down the road, they're pulled over by CHP and you're like, yes. <laughs> that is not supernatural. That is from the pit of hell, okay? <laughs> but the kindness that God wants us to have is the kindness that only God can produce in our life by his spirit. And then Paul goes on and he gives us the sixth element. That's goodness. And goodness has to do with being able to demonstrate good character instead of corruption. Goodness really has to do with the capacity to have morality and integrity that is supernatural, that goes beyond the normal kind of way that people function in society. Because you and I know in the world that we live in, integrity and honesty are not values that people hold in high esteem. Basically, the motto of life is, as long as I can get away with it. If nobody else knows... But the reality is, is that God wants to supernaturally produce in us the capacity to truly be good, even if nobody else sees and nobody else knows what's going on. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. It's in the paraphrase of the message. He says, do everything uh, readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society, Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. 
In other words, what Paul's saying is live out the fruit of the Spirit in such a way that people around you see what goodness actually looks like. That when nobody else is around and nobody else will know and nobody will get hurt, you still make the right choice. You still demonstrate good character. It's a supernatural trait. It's the Holy Spirit working deep inside of us. It's the internal dialogue that you and I have when we're faced with a decision one way or other and we know the right way and we start to rationalize, but yet God says, no, do the right thing. When I was in high school, we had our, our annual kind of thing at school in one or two classes. We always had to, always had to do a big like oral report presentation, which is public speaking, everybody's worst nightmare. And it's even like, it's like amplified when you're in high school because people really aren't very nice. They haven't learned kindness yet. They're really harsh. And nobody wants to do it. And so I remember that day came where everyone gets into the classroom. There's this, it's, the tension is really thick because everybody knows you're going to have to stand in front of the class and you have to do your presentation. And so I always like to try to go first to get it over with. And it always was very helpful to have a last name that began with the letter A because normally if they went alphabetical, I was usually like first or second. And so I think I was second, and so I go up and I, I do my presentation. I had visual aid. I do all this stuff, and you know, just like, you ever felt like, you know, when you're so nervous, like you feel like everyone can see that your chest is going <laughs> like that? It was like that. My palms are sweating and everything, and I like, I like get through it, and I sit down, I'm like, ah, oh, it's done. And so the whole time, the, the teacher, she's sitting in the back of the class, and she's, she's grading as, as we're going, like different elements to the presentation. And so when you sit down, she would hand you your score, kind of your score sheet. And so she hands it to me, and I looked down at the bottom, and it was out of 50 points, and, she's, and it said 46, and it had A circled. I'm like, yes, I got an A. And so the next person's up, and they're doing their presentation, and I'm looking at this just admiring my work and looking at the comments she put and, you know, the different sections of how she scored me and everything. And then I started kind of looking at the dis- different sections. I think there was like four or five of them. And I started adding up each one of them. And the first time through, I got down to the bottom, and I came up with, 44. I'm like, ah, oh, I must have missed it. Let me go ahead and tell it again. So I'm going through and I'm adding up and I'm like, 44. I'm like, well, maybe, you know, maybe two times I've missed it. Third time I'm going to get it. It's 46. She's a teacher. She went to school for this. She should do her math, right? So I tallied up and third time, 44. And I know 46 is 92%. That's an A. A 44 88%. That's a B. And I remember the whole period, I didn't hear any presentation that anybody made. All I had was this internal dialogue. Nobody will know. She doesn't have the individual score. She just has the total in her grade book. And I even in my mind thinking, I did a pretty good job. I could somehow figure, justify two more points that she just missed. You know all the dialogue that you have? We all do it. And the Holy Spirit kept saying, no. Even though no one will ever know, I know, and you know, you didn't earn an A in this. So when the class period was over, I walked over to her. And in my mind, this is what I'm thinking. I'm going to show her, and for, just for the fact of my integrity, she's going to give me two points. Nope. <laughs> I hand it to her. She goes, oh, yep, I misadded it up. You got, uh, yeah, that's an 88. That's a B. I'm like, oh. But I walked away thinking, I did the right thing. See, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. See, everyone has a conscience, and a conscience functions similarly that way, but you and I can cover up a conscience, and we can squeeze it out, and we can tell it to shut up and be quiet. You can't silence the Holy Spirit. He won't give up. He will keep coming after you until you and I learn what it truly means to be good. And then Paul goes on and talks about three more things. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is what the Holy Spirit produces in us that gives us the capacity to finish when others fade. To actually complete and stay true to the commitments that we've made in our life, even though circumstances are difficult, even though it's harder than we thought it was going to be. Faithfulness is a supernatural capacity to stick to it. Faithfulness is hard to come by. If you read through the scriptures, you will discover this is what's sad, but true, but God still loves people and redeems broken, flawed people. That the majority of leaders that you and I read about in the Bible didn't finish well. Now, there's a handful that did, but many of them didn't. Some of the greatest leaders in the Bible lacked faithfulness. Moses, 
incredible leader. He didn't end well, did he? Remember, he led Israel for 40 years in the desert and never got to the promised land. Why? Because God told him to speak to the rock and he hid it. He hid it out of frustration. He disobeyed God before all of Israel and didn't finish well. David, we all, David and Goliath. David, kind of the pinnacle of Israel's history. David, the man after God's own heart. David didn't finish well, did he? Now, why do I say that? To make us depressed this morning? No, but the reality is, is faithfulness is difficult. Faithfulness is a supernatural reality that has to happen in our lives that gives us the ability to be in it for the long haul. It's the very words that Jesus will use someday and uses in a parable in Matthew 25, describing our behavior in terms of following him. It says his master replied in this middle of this parable about the talents. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Faithfulness. Sticking to it. Now, one of the things that that I've seen, I've been alive long enough to see, is that the more, the newer generations we have in our world, the less faithfulness we find. It's true. The older somebody is, the longer they've lived, at least those older than me, I've seen more faithfulness. Now, it's not necessarily a knock on any specific person, but I think in our current culture, we're very flighty. We jump from one thing to another. We don't stick to commitments. But man, in the olden days, and I saw some of the the people I've seen in my life and experienced, I'm telling you, faithfulness, they got it. There's one woman that stands out particularly in my life that I think about. When Kim and I, our first ministry assignment was in Ventura at Horizon Foursquare Church with Dennis Easter. And that church historically had been around for a very long time. And so there were a lot of people who had been there almost from the start. And they were faithfully committed to Jesus. And because of that, they were faithful to their commitments. There was one woman in particular, I remember Dennis Easter doing her memorial. Her name was Rhoda Porter. And I remember they all were trying to figure out how long, how long did Rhoda teach Sunday school? Forty years. Without a break. Forty years. Not, hey, I'm going to teach this session for the next four months, then I've got to take a break. Forty years. Just think about how long 40 years is. This woman faithfully taught Sunday school for 40 years. That means multiple generations were influenced by her. In fact, she taught kids who grew up and had kids who grew up and had kids. And by the time she was at the end of her Sunday school teaching career, she was teaching the grandchildren of the kids she started teaching when she first started. That's faithfulness. Sometimes we're happy if we can get someone for four months to teach kids. Forty years. Why? Because the Spirit had so transformed her that she was committed to not the church or the pastor because the church changed over the years, the pastor changed over the years, but Jesus never did. And His Spirit lived in her. And because of that, she did that for 40 years. There are generations that will be in heaven that have been influenced by this one. Why? Simply because she showed up for 40 years. When you and I look at our lives, we think, I can't do it. You're right. We can't do it. But Holy Spirit can do it through us. He can give us the capacity to be faithful. And then Paul mentions gentleness. Just have a couple more before we conclude. And gentleness is the submission, it's submission instead of resistance. So the the concept of gentleness, really, actually, the root word comes from the word meekness. And a lot of times in modern translations, we don't use the word meekness because it causes confusion, because many times we equate meekness with weakness, which actually meekness is the polar opposite of weakness. Meekness actually is having incredible strength, incredible power, but harnessing and limiting that strength so that you can be gentle. So Moses was referred to as one of the positive traits of Moses in, in uh, Numbers 12. Because actually, it says that Moses was meek. Does that mean that Moses was weak? 
No. It means that God took all the rebellious, difficult, sharp edges, difficult corners in Moses' life, and he honed them in, in a sense, he broke Moses so that Moses could be gentle with God's people. You remember Moses' story? How did it start out? In anger, he kills an Egyptian who had just beat a Jew. And then he flees and runs and tries to hang out in the desert for 40 years, away from all of that stuff, and then God gets a hold of him. And even when God comes in the form of a burning bush, do you remember the dialogue, the argument? Moses keeps telling God, you're wrong. You got the wrong guy. This is not me. I can't speak very well. And so God takes all of that, his rebellion, his, his questioning and all that, and he hones Moses into this incredible leader that is driven by God's spirit. And that's, that's what gentleness means. It's the same meekness is used to describe a horse that is broken. It is a wild stallion. It's broken, and then it becomes power under authority or power that is restrained and limited and focused. It's like taking light and focusing it in. That's called a laser, and a laser can cut through metal. That's the, that's the kind of reality. What, what, what the Holy Spirit does in you and I is takes all the, the difficulties and the rebelliousness against God and the free spirit that we have and doesn't break us so that we're boring and we don't have a brain and we don't have a life, but he hones us in in such a way that he focuses us. The ultimate picture of what gentleness looks like or meekness looks like is Jesus. Just think about this for a moment. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He is the God of the universe in human flesh. Talk about having unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, unlimited everything, and yet, for the sake of other people, you choose to contain yourself in a human body so that you can relate to humanity. That's what gentleness is. If Jesus shows up in full power as God, all of us are dead. But he comes in the form of a human being. So what Paul is saying is that what the Holy Spirit produces is he takes all of who we are and he focuses us in and he gets us down to the place that God can use us finally. God can use us through gentleness towards other people around us. And then finally, not any easier, the last one is as hard as the first one, and that is self-control. And that is living in bounds instead of out of bounds. In other words, living in such a way that we choose to live within the parameters that God has set out for our life by using self-control, which again, that is a supernatural reality. And that is the capacity to say yes when everybody else says no, and say no when everybody else says yes. And saying yes to what we should say yes to, and no to what we should say no to. All of us know that's supernatural. All of us know that there is no human capacity for us to choose the right and do the right all the time. In fact, we live in a tension. I want to do what's right, but I do what's wrong. Anybody relate? We all do. In fact, what I want to do is, I want to I read, in fact, there's a couple of biblical examples. I'll read from Romans 7 first, but, but self-control is something that is always an issue that we have to deal with. Adam and Eve, the reason they failed, you could, you could chalk it up to the lack of self-control. Talk about inbounds, out-of-bounds. If you remember in the garden, remember that they could only do one thing wrong. Just think about that. Think about living in a world where there was only one wrong decision. We live in a world where there's a million wrong decisions. They only had one. God said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. And then we're good. And what did they do? They ate from it. Self-control. They would have said, you know what? I don't need that. I have everything else. I don't need that. But you and I live in this tension. In fact, one of the most amazing passages of Scripture that I think Paul wrote is in Romans 7. Because Paul actually kind of pulls back the, the curtain of the Apostle Paul and he shows us he's human. And he shows us the tension within himself of trying to do what's right, but realizing I lack the self-control, so I end up doing what's wrong. And I think his journey completely reflects our journey. In fact, let me read this. This is verse 15 through 25 of Romans 7. This is actually in the paraphrase called The Message. And I think it does the passage justice. So, so if you want, just, just listen to this, because I think you and I, these could be our words. This is the tension we live in when it comes to self-control. Paul says this. He says, I am full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way and then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. 
So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps, me, keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I, really, uh, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, the sin that is there, to, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Anybody relate? Then listen to what Paul says. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acts to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. That's our journey. Paul's talking about the tension within us. And what he's saying is, I need help. I've gotten to the end of myself. I can't do this anymore. That's exactly where we have to be in order for God's Spirit to work in us. In order for us to be filled with the Spirit, we can't be full of ourselves. That's what Paul's saying. I'm full of myself. What he's saying, to be filled with the Spirit, you can't be filled with yourself. Which comes down to this, and let me close with this, because one of the, the, the frustrating things about a message like this and about reading through the fruit of the Spirit or what the Spirit produces in our life is that you and I walk away in this one of two extremes, neither one healthy. One of them, I just got to work harder. I got to be more loving. I got to be more gentle. I have to show more self-control. Man, this is such a burden. This is so hard. And you just, it leads to frustration. Or you go to the other extreme with, forget it. <laughs> Can't do any of it. Why even try? Either way, you walk out depressed. So what are we supposed to do? Paul highlights something in verse 24 and 25 that tells us the first step in experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in our life has nothing to do with how much better I'm going to make myself, but it has to do with what I need to eliminate from my life. He says this. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What is Paul saying? The first step in experiencing the fruit of the Spirit is crucifying the flesh, is crucifying ourselves. What, is, what does that mean? So it's interesting, when we usually look at the fruit of the Spirit, we always start at verse 22. We never start at verse 19. Why? Hey, the fruit of the Spirit, la, 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 it's all wonderful. Wait a second. You can't get there unless you start in verse 19. What Paul's saying is, in order for you and I to experience the fruit of the Spirit in our life, something, as in everything of who we used to be, has to die. It's the crucifixion. And, and this is the tension. Let me tell you, I've been thinking a lot about water baptism lately because water baptism is the image and it is the first kind of indicator publicly of us choosing to follow Jesus. But it is an image of Jesus' death and resurrection. But what side do we normally lean on? The resurrection. So when we give the explanation of water baptism, oh, it's you're being lowered in and dying to yourself and raised to new life, right? And then we all, yeah, this is awesome. You can't be resurrected unless you die first. You can't have Easter unless you have Friday. And that's part of the tension is that maybe some of us have yet to fully experience the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe some of us have yet to ex ex truly experience life in Jesus because we still haven't crucified the old self. We still haven't let the old self die. We're like Paul. Yeah, I have great intentions, but man, there's part of me that just doesn't want to do it. I can't let that die. So really this week, what, what we come out of a message like this, what we come out of this passage in Galatians thing, is really this week is saying, okay, Holy Spirit, since you have come to live in me, I'm surrendering to you. Please show me 
those things that don't belong in my life anymore. Did, did you catch that list that Paul gave, verse 19? Let me just read it again. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That pretty much covers it all. Those major categories kind of cover a lot of human behavior. So how do you and I have any hope out of this? How do you and I have anything redemptive out of it? That means you and I come before the Lord and say, okay, of that list, what's still a part of my life? What's still in me that needs to die? What part of my life do I need to crucify? And what does crucifixion look like? What does death look like? It looks like separation. It looks like I can't live that way anymore. So the things that trigger that behavior in me are no longer allowed a part of my life. The relationships that take me down that road, I can't be involved with those right now. The things that I see, the things that I read, the influences that I allow, I have to be willing to put those to death. Why? So that I can experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. These things that really are what we want. But we have to die first in order to experience life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your spirit has been given to us so that we can be powerful in witnessing for you, that we can be gifted in fulfilling your purpose, and also so that we can be what you designed us to be. We can live out the life that you lived out, and the characteristics that were true of your life can be true of us because the same spirit that worked in you is the same spirit that is alive in us. So, Lord, I ask that you would give us this week. Give us courage. Courage to look at our lives honestly and to ask the hard question, what is it that needs to die? What is it that needs to be crucified? What is it that needs to be removed so that I can make room in the soil of my life for you to produce the fruit that only you can produce? And I'm just going to pause for a moment just with your eyes closed and encourage some of you you, you need to be able to articulate those things. Not just, it's good for you to pray and to ask the Lord what he's saying to you, but there needs to be, for some, there needs to be a points of accountability that you need to be able to share with somebody else. So find that friend, find that person. Maybe some of you need to get in a life transformation group. You need to say, hey, these are the parts of my life that need to die. Can you hold me accountable to those things? Can you pray with me? Can you encourage me? Can you give me strength? Because many of us, if we're going to try this in isolation, it's not going to work. We need somebody else to come alongside. Find that person. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us again the courage and the strength to be able to follow you in this so that we can experience the full reality of your Spirit's presence in our life. That we can see the evidence of his work in us. That we can point to the fruit that he's produced and the difference it makes in our lives and the difference it makes in the lives of people around us. Lord Jesus, help us, give us strength, empower us, fill us, and produce the fruit of your Spirit in our lives. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.